0: I invite you now to take out your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, starting in verse 60. Behold the word of the Lord. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I sense the reading of God's holy word. Please be seated.
1: Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the great privilege of being called by your name, uh, being gathered together as your people. Father, as we now open your word, we pray that you would do what only you can and bless the preaching of your word. Father, if there's any distractions in our minds, we pray that you would bring those aside. Lord, I pray that you would get me out of the way. Uh, May it be your truth received by your people. pray that you would be glorified in us and that we would be edified and conformed more and more to the image of Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So we pick up again with our series in John, and we come now finally to the end of chapter 6. We took our time through this chapter, going in rather small chunks, uh, since it was one of the sections that we were the most excited to preach through uh, in John. As we've seen, Jesus unpacks some glorious truths about election, about the necessity and the power of grace, about the nature of man, Uh, all of which will profoundly impact our worldview uh, if we will take these things to heart. So to recap this section and to set up our text for this morning, uh, Jesus had been saying these things, right? This whole discussion uh, was uh, to um, explain the unbelief of the Jews, those those statements about election, about the necessity of grace. So in spite of the reality that Jesus really was the bread that came down from heaven— to give life to the world, as he said. Many of those who heard Jesus' words did not believe. That raises a question. Well, why? Right? If Jesus, if you really are what you say you are, you are such good news, your words are so significant, then why are there so many not believing in you? Can you be said in some way to be a failure for that reason? Jesus' answer uh, was no. As he explained, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and those who come I will never cast out. Jesus then explains the unbelief of the crowd in front of him by saying, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Last week we saw Jesus begin to unpack what that drawing of the Father really was. Uh, And that it was a teaching, an inward illumination uh, in the heart of man. God opening up our hearts, teaching us. Jesus then extended his bread of life metaphor, taking it even further, saying that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And we saw, if we take uh, Jesus' own interpretation of this metaphor, we see that he was simply talking about believing in him. Eating and drinking was believing and receiving him. However, many of his disciples appear to have been very put off by his words in this whole discussion. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Let's read together from verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Right, so many of those who up until this time had been followers of Jesus, even calling themselves his own disciples, found this to be a hard saying. And what that means is not that it was hard to understand, but that it was hard to receive, right? hard to accept. So what was it, we ask, that they found to be so intolerable? What was the teaching they found difficult to accept or receive? Well, having worked through this entire dialogue, we can imagine there may have been several things that they may have found disagreeable. Remember, Jesus had declared himself to be superior even to Moses, whom they considered to be the greatest prophet. Jesus had declared that he had come down from heaven Uh, that he was the bread of life, superior to the manna, and the people complained about this, saying, we know his parents, we know where he's from, right? How can he say he is the bread of life come down from heaven? Jesus had declared that God had chosen a particular people and had given them to the Son, this idea of election. Jesus had declared that apart from the work of God in the heart, man is unable to come to faith. Jesus then promised eternal life to those who believe in him. And he did so using a rather jarring metaphor, telling the people they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And he had even told the Jews that because they did not come to him, it demonstrated that they had not been taught by God. So as we can see, there are quite a good number of things in this dialogue that may have given offense, right? That they may have found to be offensive, may have found to be hard sayings. And so many of his disciples found his words to be intolerable. We will not receive this. We cannot receive this. They ask this rhetorical question, who can listen to this, right? And the implication is we cannot. We will not. Right? All of this is now a bridge too far for us. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Right? If you take offense at something I have said, at the authority that I've claimed for myself. If you take offense at the idea of my having come down from heaven or the idea of me being superior to Moses, then how would you respond if you saw me return to where I came from, to ascend back to heaven? And Jesus uses the term son of man to refer to himself. Now, as you may remember, as a messianic title... This was drawn from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, which says this. Uh, So giving the background to the phrase, son of man, Daniel 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus asks, do you take offense at my words? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Perhaps an allusion to this text in Daniel 7 the Son of Man coming up with the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom, receiving dominion and glory. If you saw that, how then would you respond? And I think that could be taken two different ways. Either that they're seeing this, they're seeing the ascension of the Son of Man and receiving a kingdom would either remove the offense or that it could add to it. Right, on the one hand, seeing Jesus exalted in this way would really vindicate all of his claims. Right, once you've witnessed the Son of Man ascending back to where he was before, going up to the right hand of the Father, uh, re- receiving this kingdom, you would realize that he was absolutely right about the authority that he had. Right, his claims have been vindicated He was right to say he was superior to Moses. God the Father is vouching for everything he has ever said by exalting him to his right hand. And so seeing him exalted like this could be a way of removing the offensiveness of his claims as it now demonstrates that he did truly have the authority to make them. The other way it could be taken is that Jesus is imagining this adding to the offense. And the way that it could add to the offense is if we remember that Jesus' path to ascension and glory ran first through the cross and the grave. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus being lifted up involves his crucifixion. A crucified Messiah would have been the ultimate stumbling block for Jews who were waiting for a Messiah to be a political deliverer. And so in this sense, then Jesus would be saying, do you take offense at this? <laughs> Just wait, you ain't seen nothing yet. And these two alternatives may not be mutually exclusive. Both would be true. In any account, Jesus then returns to the need for grace in order to enable belief. Let's read verse 63. Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. D.A. Carson writes, One of the clearest characteristics of the spirit in the Old Testament is the giving of life. In this gospel, we have already been introduced to the spirit's role in the new birth, John 3. There, the contrast between flesh and spirit is no less sharp. So here, the spirit gives life close quote We've seen Jesus to this point in the gospel being presented as the bearer of the spirit. Right? He was anointed by the spirit after his baptism. He is the one who gives the spirit without measure. John 3:34. And so here Jesus makes it clear that we need the spirit of God for spiritual life. Jesus's words, he says are spirit and life, that is, they are of the Spirit and therefore are to be spiritually discerned. The idea here being similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 14. Uh, in that text, Paul says, the natural person, uh, which means uh, the person who doesn't have the Spirit, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So just to bring that down, make it real simple, what Paul's saying is that apart from the Spirit, right? if you do not have the Holy Spirit of God, this means you will not be able to properly understand or receive the Word of God. Right, the word of God, the things of the spirit of God, this spirit-inspired scripture, apart from the spirit, you will not understand or receive this word. Uh, and that means, uh, and, and he explains, the truths of scripture are spiritually discerned. You need the spirit. And that means that you need, uh, for Jesus' words as well, his words being spirit and life, if you will receive them, uh, you will have life, but we see the flesh cannot do this. Right, the natural man, apart from the Spirit of God, cannot receive his words. Right, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And so we see again that we need the Holy Spirit. He must cause us to be born again before we can uh, see or enter the kingdom of God, John 3. The Holy Spirit must remove our hearts of stone, Ezekiel 36. He must grant us new hearts, hearts inscribed with the law of God, Jeremiah 31. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Verse 64. But there are some standing here who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So Jesus now confronts the unbelief of some within the crowd of those calling himself, themselves, his disciples. Now note here, this is not talking about the twelve. Right? It says disciples, he's not talking about the twelve. Uh, Jesus will turn and address them in a moment. Uh, but rather, this would be the broader group of people who had been following Jesus around uh, from place to place, even calling themselves his disciples, his followers verse 61 says that Jesus knew in himself about their grumbling and here John explains Jesus knew from the very beginning right right from the start who those were in this crowd of disciples who did not believe in him we see again Jesus has supernatural knowledge of those who are his as chapter 2 verse 24 I had said Jesus knew all people And so this then explains uh, what seems like a bit of a harsh response from Jesus uh, in this section. He responds to this crowd uh, in some interesting ways, um, as well as what he says now to this group of so-called disciples who would begin grumbling against him. We are uh, to understand that Jesus knew infallibly that their objections, right, this grumbling, these questions they had, their objections were not the honest questions of the genuinely puzzled, seeking answers. Now for us, if we are, if we are seeing the harshness of Jesus' response to them, and, and we are concerned, well, how, how will Jesus respond to me if I'm coming? Would he respond with the same type of harshness to me? And I think we need to know, uh, to, to be reminded of this, that Jesus knew that these were not honest questioners. Right? He knew their hearts. In contrast, in Scripture, what we see from Christ is that to those who are broken but earnest in seeking him, while Jesus will sometimes test their faith, what we consistently see in our Savior is a tender and compassionate heart. Though he did have harsh words for the hypocrites, for the disingenuous, we see that Christ had a tender and compassionate heart toward those who came seeking forgiveness, seeking healing. Isaiah 42 verse 3 speaks of the character of the Messiah. It said, A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Take comfort in these words. To those bruised reeds, those whose consciences are tender. Those who have come to see the misery of their condition, understanding the heinousness of their sin against God, and have come to see the danger that their souls are under, and have been driven to a Savior, Christ will not break them. He will treat them with a tenderness with which he would need to treat a bruised reed. I think of a, of a bruised reed, right? The smallest nudge may break A bruised reed. And so we have a picture in this metaphor of the tender compassion of Christ toward those who are poor in spirit, broken over their sin, seeking help and forgiveness. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. If, If there is fire there at all, it is God's doing and Christ will not quench it. He will not snuff it out, no matter how faintly it may be burning. So let us not get the wrong idea as we see the harshness of Christ's words uh, to these hypocrites, to these people with their dishonest questions. Uh, Let us remember that he is a tender and compassionate shepherd toward all of his sheep. Verse 65. And this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to them by the Father. Jesus's words are spirit and life but Jesus knowing from the beginning that some did not believe explains right he's explaining their unbelief and he says this is why I said no one can come unless it is granted by the father so I just want to drive this point home Jesus explains the unbelief of the crowds in the previous section He explains the unbelief of many who claim to be his disciples, and even the unbelief of Judas, who would betray him. He explains this unbelief by pointing back to what he said earlier. This is why I said, no one can come unless it is granted, given by the Father. So notice, Jesus, claiming his words are spirit and life, His words are not defective. As this crowd rejects him, Jesus' words are not failing to accomplish their purpose. They really are spirit and life, but he explains no one can receive them unless it is granted them by the Father, unless they are drawn by the Father, taught by the Father. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. And so these grumblers, these unbelievers, Jesus is explaining, they do not believe simply because it had not been granted them by the Father. Now for ourselves, I think we need a a caution here. As we interact with unbelievers, there will likely be times when we are rejected, as Jesus was, And so as we consider then how to respond to the unbelievers who reject us, we must remember that we are in a different situation from Jesus in one very significant way. And that is, we don't know who the elect are. Remember, Jesus knew the hearts of all. He knew infallibly which people were coming with sincerity, being drawn by the Father. And he knew those who were coming for selfish or disingenuous motives. He knew infallibly the differences between an honest question and a scoffing dismissal. Um, This will not be as easy for us to discern. We can't see into people's hearts. While Jesus does warn his people against casting their pearls before swine, we're giving holy things to dogs, and so we are warned against engaging too much with those who are simply seeking to trample or devour us. We must keep in mind that our general approach and attitude ought to be compassion and patience, simply because we do not have the divine knowledge that Christ did. And so we should not be quick. To give up on people we must be hopeful not dismissive prayerful not angry humble not self-righteous even if you're rejected by someone again and again and again you don't know what god's plans are for that person it might be that through our persevering prayer our continual and frequently frustrating discussions with them, our seemingly fruitless gospel proclamation, it might be through all of this that God is planning to save that person. And even then, maybe only after 25 years of your faithful effort, be patient. God may yet move. We do not know what his plans are verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now notice how the text has explained already the abandonment of these former disciples. Notice that scripture gives us a category of someone making a false profession of faith. Verse 64 told us Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. The ultimate example of unbelief. Right, so you have this group of people following Jesus around, calling themselves his disciples, and yet we are told that from the beginning, from when they first started following him, Jesus already knew which of them Did not believe. So notice what we're told about these people. They were not true believers who then lost their faith. They were not given by the Father to the Son only to have the Son fail to keep them in. Rather, what we see, despite their profession of faith, despite the fact that they called themselves His disciples, They were never true believers in the first place. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And so, this is how we are to view apostasy, right? People turning away. It is not that people were once saved, but can then be lost. But rather, what we see is that those who turn away from Christ, never to return, are giving evidence that they never truly believed in the first place. If we remember, again, that true faith is something worked in the heart by God, if we remember that we must be born again by the Spirit of God, raised to spiritual life, given new hearts, indwelt by the Spirit, if these things have truly happened in you, right? if God has really done all of that in your heart, you may be confident he will hold you fast he will not let you go and so then those who do turn away never to return are simply proving that the root of the matter was never in them right remember Jesus's parable they were the shallow soil there appeared to be a good response to the preaching of the gospel maybe even continuing for a time, but it gets choked out by the weeds or scorched by the sun. Jesus told that parable to prepare his disciples for the different responses they would see to the gospel. Right? Some, there's no response at all. The seed is plucked by the birds before it ever takes root. Some, it appears to take root for a time, but is scorched. Right? Uh, and we see an example of it here. These so-called disciples who turned away never had the root of the matter. Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. Verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Right in the aftermath of this discussion, and many of Jesus' followers at the time now turning back and no longer following him, Jesus turns to his twelve disciples and says, How about you? Do you want to go away as well? Have you also found my words, my sayings, to be too hard, too offensive? Do you want to go away as well? I imagine Jesus would ask us all that same question how about you do you want to go away as well in our day there are many people who once claimed to follow Christ who now consider his words or his word too offensive they come across something in scripture something God commands says or does And they respond much like these apostates. These are hard words. Who can listen to this? It's the 21st century. Who can believe such outdated, archaic things? And so they turn back and no longer follow him. Or perhaps they do the deconstructionism thing, which is driven by this exact same impulse. You may have heard deconstructionism, right? You kind of work through all of the doctrines and commandments of Scripture, uh, discarding or reinterpreting anything that they find to be distasteful. Pretending either that Jesus didn't say what he said, or that the plain text of Scripture mean the opposite of what they actually say. They end up redefining the faith, ignoring commands, and creating a new religion to suit their preferences which they unfortunately still call christianity they construct a new view of god and of jesus in order to suit their fancies now hope you can see the problem with this the problem is that this god of their imaginations this god whom they have invented does not exist right this god who tells them everything that their itching ears want to hear is not the true god of heaven this jesus they imagine does not exist and so they may still call themselves christians but really you can see they have turned back from following christ for the same reasons that these so-called disciples did they have found the true Jesus offensive. And I think this same challenge comes to each one of us as we too discover hard things in Scripture. Politically incorrect things. Things that we find difficult. Things that we find offensive. Things that don't jive with our sensibilities. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Why does scripture have to use that word? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I can't do that. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. My enemies... Really? Like those people who mistreat me, who call me names, who hate me, I'm supposed to love them and pray for them? I don't know. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Man, that sounds like a lot of work. I think I'll take a back seat instead or love one another with brotherly affection bear one another's burdens weep with those who weep rejoice with those who rejoice i don't know i'm busy enough with my own family i don't think i need to be quite that involved with my church these are hard sayings these are not easy instructions for us to follow right our flesh puts up resistance to the commands of scripture and so here's the question for us I mean, as we come to these hard things these difficult commands or these politically incorrect things how will we respond do you want to go away as well and peter answers with the response of every true child of god lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? For us who are in Christ, the Spirit has given us life. The Father has drawn us. He has opened our eyes. We too have seen, believed, and have come to know that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. In him is eternal life. He is the Holy One. Where else could we possibly go? He is the Holy One. Now one of the driving factors uh, in those who go the deconstructionist route is uh, the idea, as the underlying conviction that man can be more righteous than God. Or at the very least, that we can be more righteous than the God presented in the scriptures. People who go down this road frequently consider themselves to be morally superior to the God of the Bible. They conclude that something God has said is wrong is actually good and right. right. Something God said is wrong is actually good and right. They decide that something God does is actually something that should not be done something a truly loving god would never do and so you can hear this in their language i can never worship a god who would do that and they mention something god says or does in scripture so you see they are setting themselves up as the new standard deciding for themselves what is right and wrong good and evil this is arrogance taken to an extreme. Christ is the Holy One of God. God is the standard of goodness, not us. We dare not set ourselves up to judge God. Can you invert the universe? Can you flip it all on its head? Can you presume to make God answerable to the likes? of you. We must remember we are fallen. We are sinners. God is holy. God is righteous. God himself is the standard of righteousness. Christ is the holy one. He is the one who came down from heaven. He is the one who reveals, instructs, commands. He is the one who saves. He has the words of eternal life. God has revealed to us that sin has infected every part of us. Our will, our reasoning, our emotions, and yes, even our sense of right and wrong. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Christ is the Holy One. He has the words of eternal life. And what we will find is that as the Spirit moves in our hearts, as we become progressively sanctified, as we are taught through his word, we come to see the goodness of his commands. As we grow in maturity, as we grow in faith, we will come to agree more and more with God until we can say with the psalmist, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes psalm 19 7 and 8 he has the words of eternal life and we must know that the word of the lord is life-giving both in the sense that it is through him that we have eternal life but also in the sense that his words are light and life for us here and now sin in all of its forms rejection of god's word rebellion against him sin will always do what sin does seeds of sin and rebellion will always produce a harvest of corruption god is not mocked a man reaps what he sows you cannot use rotten eggs and expect to get a good omelet You cannot plant tomatoes and think you'll harvest cucumbers. If you sow seeds of sin, there is only one kind of fruit you'll ever get. Do not reject the word of God. God's words are true. His commandments pure. His precepts are right. More precious than gold, sweeter than honey. His ways are wisdom, justice, and righteousness. Do not, in even the smallest area, imagine yourself to be wiser than God. To be more righteous than God. Do not set yourself up as the standard over God's word. Do not imagine that you can judge the God who will judge you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. The fact is, when you do, you will find the path of wisdom. You will find that God knows what he's doing. That his ways are the best ways. That they are life and peace and blessing for all who follow them. Christ is the Holy One of God. He has the words of eternal life. Verse 70 jesus answered them did i not choose you the twelve and yet one of you is a devil and he spoke of judas the son of simon iscariot for he one of the twelve was going to betray him now peter had answered very well and jesus points out that he was the one who chose them right? not the other way around right? even with a good answer before it would begin to go to their heads and they may pat themselves on the back for their faithfulness to Jesus, he reminds them that he was the one who chose them. D.A. Carson writes, Jesus will not allow even a whisper of human pretensions. Ultimately, the twelve did not choose Jesus, he chose them. And even there, the one catastrophic failure amongst the twelve was not unforeseen, close quote. So remembering again that much of what Jesus has been saying in this dialogue uh, was answering the idea that he may be in some way said to be a failure, right? given how many people rejected his message. He is claimed to be the bread of life come down from heaven, yet there were some standing there uh, and some who even from among the twelve who did not believe, one from among the twelve. Jesus points out, That the success of his mission depends not on the will of man, but upon the sovereignty of God. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is the will of the Father that Christ should lose nothing of all he has been given. No one can come unless the Father draws them. This is Jesus' explanation for the unbelief of the crowd, for the unbelief of many who called themselves his disciples, and for the unbelief of the betrayer. None of this was a surprise to Jesus. He knew those who were his. And he knew from the beginning who did not believe and who would betray him. And so the betrayal of Judas is not an example of failure on Jesus's part. Again, Jesus knew from the beginning Judas was a devil. He knew Judas would betray him. You know, sometimes the example of Judas is used to try to disprove election, right? As if Jesus had chosen Judas for salvation, uh, but Judas managed to thwart that plan through his own free will. Let us see here that this is clearly not the case. Jesus knew from the beginning who did not believe and who would betray him. So that brings up another question, and that is, why would Jesus choose Judas if he knew from the beginning that Judas would betray him? Right, if you think, I'm going to choose 12 guys who are going to be my closest uh, companions, my closest disciples, and I can see into that guy's heart, and I know he's going to betray me, you'd think you would just choose somebody else. Right, so why did Jesus choose Judas? Because it was through death that Jesus would bring life to the world. You know, we've been looking this morning at teachings that people find offensive, things that would cause people to leave from following Jesus. <clears throat> well, here we come to one of the central offending doctrines, uh, even in his day and still in our day. Right? Many of the Jews in Jesus' day could not fathom the concept of a crucified messiah as we saw following the miracle of the loaves and the fish uh, many of the jews in that day wanted a miracle working king right perhaps one who could feed their armies uh, stir them up with his rousing speeches and lead a rebellion against rome like many of the messianic pretenders had previously attempted the Jews had certain ideas of what the Messiah should be and do, and dying on a cross was not on their list. But in the wisdom of God, what was folly to the Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews was the very means of salvation that God had planned from before the foundation of the world. The cross was no accident. The betrayal of Judas was no accident. Jesus was not a failed revolutionary who accidentally got himself crucified. He went to the cross, eyes wide open, knowing that this was the way that he would offer his flesh for the life of the world. John 6:51. And here is the central Christian proclamation. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, according to what scripture had foretold what God had prophesied through the Old Testament. Now what does that mean, to die for our sins? What does the Old Testament say about the Messiah dying for sins? Consider Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ was pierced for our transgressions he was pierced through his hands and feet and his side being nailed to the cross and delivering his life there and this happened for our transgressions right because of our sins because of the evil things we had done scripture says this is why he endured it pierced for our transgressions crushed for our iniquities the lord has lain on him The iniquity of us all. He bore the punishment that brought us peace. The cross continues to be a stumbling block for many to this day. For it is at the cross that God's hatred of sin is revealed. For as scripture teaches, Christ bore our punishment. He took our iniquity, our sin. He was made sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And so the cross is therefore Simultaneously, the greatest expression of God's wrath against sin and of his amazing grace toward undeserving sinners. See the beloved Son of God, the Holy One of God, suffering under the load of our sin. Christ, God the Son, with whom the Father was well-pleased, right the one who has never seen a break in relationship a break of fellowship but had only ever experienced the pleasure the perfect pleasure and love of his father now has sin the sins of his people laid upon him and instead of favor christ now experienced the wrath of god against sin upon him was the chastisement the punishment That brought us peace. As the song puts it. You who think of sin but lightly. Nor suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word the Lord's anointed. Son of man and son of God. If you want to get a glimpse of how serious sin is, consider what it took to deal with it. And here's why many today find the cross to be so offensive. They want to believe in a wrathless God. An easygoing God who is nothing but tolerance, acceptance, and love as they would define it. And so the cross, as Scripture presents it, is offensive to them. For here is this bloody sacrifice, this instrument of execution at the center of the Christian proclamation, this testimony to what it took to to purchase your forgiveness, and therefore a testimony to how seriously God views sin. And so many people are unwilling to accept a hard word like this. For whatever reason, perhaps wishing to hold on to sin, wishing to preach a message that's easier to hear, more acceptable to modern ears, and so they turn away from God, turn away from Jesus and make a new religion that suits their preferences, a new gospel that is no gospel at all one that has removed the offense of the cross. First Corinthians one twenty three, and we'll close with this. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Where else shall we go? Christ has the words of eternal life, He has made propitiation. He has atoned for our sin, purchasing eternal life for his people. He is the Holy One of God, and we have found life in his name. The wrath of God was poured out on his Son, that he might extend grace to his people, that we might be raised just as Christ was raised. Believe in the Holy One of God. Amen.